oil seeds, pulses, grains, and just annual crops in general have been a tough fit for us in our podcast all about the farm solutions that are also climate solutions. Agricultural climate solutions do exist in annual cropping systems. It's just a bit easier to find them in perennial systems and in renewable energy. But cropland in Alberta is increasing and it currently makes up about half of the province's agricultural land. So there's a big opportunity here to sequester carbon, grow biodiversity, and increase water infiltration. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're talking polycultures and forage systems. Polycultures, cocktail crops, intercropping, cover crops, companion cropping, relay crops, and so on and so forth. What does it all mean, right? Are the differences as subtle as the differences between all those agricultural systems that fall under the category of good land stewardship? Like sustainable agriculture, organic agriculture, agroecology, permaculture, regenerative agriculture, and our personal favorite, agricultural climate solutions. Or are they all really the same thing? We do love a good venture into the weeds on the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast, but we'll save that for another time. Plus, Dr. Gillian Baynard of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada is going to explain the difference between most of those cropping systems in this episode anyways. Back in 2022, my co-worker Marie Galanka hosted a webinar with Dr. Baynard on polycultures in forage systems. You can watch the webinar recording on our YouTube channel. As we often do on this podcast, we took the audio recording from that webinar, chopped it up, and turned it into a podcast episode. This may be one of the last times we do this since Rural Roots to Climate Solutions doesn't have any webinars planned for 2023 or 2024. We've got a few other things in the works to advance those farm solutions and ranch solutions that are also climate solutions right here in Alberta. So yeah, I work with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. I have been based in the, at the Swift Current Research and Development Centre for the past several years. Uh, but during the pandemic, my family and I relocated to the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. So I just wanted to acknowledge that today I'm speaking to you also from the traditional ancestral and unceded land of the Coast Salish people and the Stalo First Nations. Dr. Bernard is a research scientist, but more specifically, she's something called a forage ecophysiologist. She studies forage systems and the interactions between plants and the environment. So first is to make sure we're all on the same page. What are polycultures? So polycultures is when we grow more than one species together. And typically poly means many, right? So we're thinking more than more than one, uh, but often quite a lot. Like uh, talking with producers, some people are putting 18 different things together. Definitely we're talking about diversity. And some of the other words you're going to hear that are the, sort of mean the same thing are polycrops. That's a little uh, maybe smaller, easier to say than polycultures, cocktail mixes. And in general, like I said, these just refer to diverse crop mixtures. The other thing I want to introduce is the idea of a cover crop, because often these words get used a little bit interchangeably. And cover crops are typically not grown for a cash outcome. 
but rather they're used to provide benefits to the soil and po possibly to the following crop. The idea of cover is especially important in the idea of a tillage system and in particular a no-till system where you're reducing erosion by keeping something on the ground, keeping roots in the soil, often year round. So in many climates, cover crops will be used outside of the grow or like all season in the prairies that can look a little bit different. Green manure is a sort of a similar term for cover crops, but often specifically refers to crops high in legumes so that we see this nitrogen fixing component in the addition of sort of really soil fertilizer benefits. And again, typically completely left behind, left in the soil for those benefits. So as I just alluded to, cover crops can be grown at different times. In these systems where it's to cover the soils, often you would see a cash crop grown followed by a cover crop to then provide that sort of all season cover. So we can think of them in the shoulder seasons, it, growing in either fall or spring. Often you'll find in the prairies, um, so like I said, most of my work has been in Swift Current, but I grew up in southern Alberta uh, near Lethbridge on a grain farm there. Obviously those great growing seasons are not super friendly, depending on your year, but in a dry year, right? And with cold, cold conditions, those shoulder seasons might not be super feasible. So all season cover crops can also be grown as part of a rotation. So where maybe you'd have a specific concern that you were trying to address by growing one of these polycultures or a different cover crop. And I just put these pictures, these are from the web, they're not my pictures, but just to show that cover crops can be terminated in a couple different ways. Sometimes they can be mowed and different types of mowing as is shown in the bottom picture there, where the sort of the stubble and the standing height can be variable or it can be cut quite short and the, the residue in the mulch is kind of reapplied to the landscape. Sometimes they're actually terminated with herbicides, something called a roller crimper, kind of knocks the crop down and kind of chops it, but doesn't like chop it up. It just sort of leaves it laying on the surface. And these will have different implications, for, again, for land use. Depending on the amount of residue left behind, it could be uh, easier or more difficult to seed into the following year, depending on the equipment available. Couple more terms, because often I get asked about this. Intercropping is sort of interchangeable with polycultures, but in a usually intercropping is much more uh, used in the cash crop space where we have two or more crops grown together but usually in separate rows or we might get into relay cropping when you have two crops planted on the same land base but on different dates and in both these systems typically they can be used for still for like seed or grain production um, where you would be able to separate seeds in time by harvesting one crop and then the other crop later or by size, um, you know, if you're growing a big seeded crop and a small seeded crop, they could be quite easily sorted. Again, these are more sort of spatial terms um, that that you'll see, but can still apply. In a forage system, which I, as, as Marie said, I mean, we're talking, uh, or as, as I mentioned too, I work a lot in the forage space. So in these systems, we look at using these diverse polyculture mixtures as a way to provide feed for livestock. So the idea is that you can get those benefits for the soil uh, and some of those traditional cover crop ideas, but you get that added economic benefit of removing these crops or some of them for forage production. Okay, so I have to admit that up until now, I haven't really understood the subtle difference between cover crops and polycultures and the subtle differences between polycultures and intercropping. 
what I'm hearing from Dr. Bernard here is that in a forage system, a polyculture is a lot like a cover crop. But a cover crop you plan on using for livestock feed. You're pushing for both direct improvements to soil and economic outcomes. For example, you, you want cattle weight gains. Intercropping, on the other hand, is primarily used in cash crops, so oil seeds, pulses, grains. By the way, if you want to learn more about cover crops, download episode 51. And if you want to learn more about intercropping, download episode 34. And when we, we talk about integrated crop livestock systems, uh, again, in an annual system, it might be annual land that's not typically used for forage, but for you know one year in a rotation, could be used for various um, reasons, one of which is to provide that extra feed for, for livestock. And depending on the system or the farm where this is happening, uh, harvest can happen in a couple different ways. So direct grazing, uh, of course, if the livestock have access to water and, and you have fencing in place, that's a very popular option because then you actually get animals on the land, right? So you get the addition of manure and urea, as well as hoof action to maybe trample or break down some of that plant material. Swath grazing is an option, depending on, again, seasonality, and then that can provide a little bit of stockpiled or later season grazing, possibly. Baling is an option. I've talked to people who silage. A lot of these options are going to be dependent also on what is in your mixture uh, and how well they kind of preserve uh, under these different conditions. For the rest of the episode, Dr. Bernard discusses what her research into polycultures is telling us about polycultures. So today I'm going to talk about my work with these polycultures in three different sort of headings. I want to talk about their production capacity, specifically about nutrition and grazing, and then lastly, about benefits for the soil. And as I mentioned, most of my research was taking place in Swift Current, Saskatchewan. So in that southwestern part of the province there, definitely in the brown to even light brown sort of soil zone, uh, semi-arid, dry. So part of that Palliser's Triangle, which in Alberta you would be into there in the southeastern corner of the province. And a lot of my research has taken place in what you see in this drone footage or image on small plot research trials, but we've also expanded this to larger trials and uh, that include livestock, as well as on producer farms, uh, which I'll talk a little bit about as well. So let's start by talking about productivity. I just like to start here as well, because when we talk about polycultures, the first question I've almost always asked is, how many things should I grow? And it's really difficult for me to say. I think there's a ton of things that weigh into that decision. But in one trial I did where I grew monocultures up to 12 different crops together, we did see this trend. We have species richness, which is simply the number of species that are included. So going from one up to 12. And we have functional group richness. And what functional groups are, are just different sort of categories of plants. So in this case, our four functional groups were cool season grasses, so things like barley and oats, uh, warm season grasses, things like corn and millet, legumes, we had peas and vetch, and then the fourth category were brassicas, or like those rooting crops like turnips and radishes. So in both cases, if we just look at the number of species, we see that trend line moving up, and similarly with the functional group inclusion, we see that trend line moving up. However, 
The caveat being that some monocultures are always going to outperform these mixtures. So for example, um, this really high point here in the monoculture is corn. <laughs> so very big biomass producer, but you aren't going to get all these other benefits, right? So the idea about growing these things together is also if you had, you know, one crop fail or something didn't work right, well, you have all these backup crops that might be able to perform under the situation that you find yourself in. So certainly a strong trend there. It's not going to be the case for every mixture versus monoculture, but there is some evidence to show that improved productivity, which is one of the points that is often raised. The other thing I always like to show is this slide about stressful conditions. So in this research trial, this is the same one, the one to 12 species mixtures. We grew them back to back to back, which you typically wouldn't do. We grew it with no fertilizer, which you typically wouldn't probably do either. But really trying to understand, because with the inclusion of legumes, and honestly, I've seen it marketed from different seed companies, where it will say no fertilizer required. Depending on your rotation and your system, again, there's gonna be variability there. But in this system, what I found was really striking is if you look at the eight species mix on the left and the oats monoculture on the right, you can see um, these stems, depending on the screen you're on, the, the plants that are sticking above the horizon here are oats, and you can see that characteristic oat head shape. And the oats on the right there are well below that horizon line. And so seeing that when they're grown in mixture, we definitely did see nutritional benefits from those legumes and brassicas that were in the mix in this super stressful situation. So you, you could probably even kind of, just by looking at it, it looks kind of a little bit nutrient deprived. But um, that is one of those benefits of these mixtures is that ability to improve some soil nutrition, which I'll get into a little bit later as well. One thing to say, and uh, as producers, everyone knows, right, production is going to vary with your weather and your climate in general and site conditions. So both on farm, seasonally, year to year. That's obvious, not anything new that you've never heard before, but I think it's really important because often when we hear really big success stories around these mixtures, it's from really good years. And stressful years are stressful for these crops. Even if you have all these diverse species in there, they're going to be impacted by stress. So this is just an example again from Swift Current. So 2015 was unusually dry. 2016, we started out unseasonably wet. And the biomass production uh, demonstrates that as well. Just a little bit in terms of production from a forage perspective, as I mentioned in the introduction, there are potentials for late season grazing. So um, I haven't really been working in the swath grazing space, but Bart Lardner, our colleague at the University of Saskatchewan, as well as two of my colleagues at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada and Swift Current, Akhililu Alemu and Alan Iwasa, have been doing some trials looking at uh, swath grazing potential. Definitely success for swath grazing is also going to be really dependent on in-season moisture to produce enough biomass to maintain a, a, like a good swath. The brassicas, like the radishes and turnips in particular, have super high moisture content. So as they dry down, you find actually quite a diminishing amount of biomass. So depending on that combination, the mixture you have and the, the in-season growth, those late season potentials might shift in a swath, swath grazing scenario. The shoulder season cover crops and relay crops 
I also haven't really worked in that space, but really lots of good, good research in this area and looking at, for example, growing something like corn with uh, underseeded Italian ryegrass or something that will then, once the corn is harvested, it's just kind of waiting there uh, and will grow into that fall season and provide some nice forage that way. A little bit about seeding considerations related to productivity. I just, from my experience, the crops that have been recommended by seed companies don't always work where you actually farm. So often these blends have been made to generally work and the, some of the blends work excellent. However, uh, like an example would be something like kale is in some of the blends and like I just could not get it to grow in swift current. Other people may have had success. But recognizing that the cost of the mixture and the diversity of the mixture that you seed might not necessarily be what actually grows at your farm. And another part of this is the challenge of seeding these diverse crops. So, you know, in the picture there, the top is millet and the middle is peas and the bottom is radish. Very different seed sizes and really should be seeded at different depths, right? And uh, depending again on your equipment and your resources, some people will do multiple passes, which is quite labor intensive. So seed all the big seeded things first and the small seeded. Alternatively, some people will use like a fertilizer side banding shoot to send one of the seed sizes through. Or some people have actually made some really unique uh, machinery adjustments where different boxes have different blends and they can kind of adjust how those are going into the ground. Uh, that's a really great option. And in a lot of my research, because we've been limited by some of those factors, we've just put them all at an intermediate seed depth. So it's probably a little bit shallow for the big seeded things, a little bit deep for the small seeded things. But again, depending on weather and particularly moisture, you actually can have decent success with that if the seeds get into moisture. That'd be the obviously biggest limiting factor. And so as I mentioned, the seeding rates that you pick might not always be representative of what comes up. So in terms of that first point there, the ones recommended by seed companies, I just always like to encourage people that might be interested in this to talk openly with a seed company and also with your neighbors or egg specialists, uh, ministry, whichever type of people you have access to, just to put some feelers out like, hey, have you tried millet? Uh, did it work? Uh, and and it, it's going to be very different, but the more kind of information you have, the, the better you'll be prepared, I think. Weed control. This is something about production that I think, uh, and about these polycultures that has two really huge pros and cons. So I'm going to start with the pros. Depending on what you include in these mixes, we actually can see some potential for weed control or weed suppression. So one trial I did looked at uh, growing up to, I think I had eight species together in this mix. And then also growing them in single rows or in closer rows, like split, more of an intercropping scenario. And we found that there wasn't really any impact based on that row spacing. And it wasn't really related to diversity as much as the inclusion of specific species. And those were triticale, barley, and then radish and turnip. And so there is some suggestion that those could be due to what's called allelopathy, so the ability of those plants to release chemicals that sort of outcompete other plants in the area. 
But also a lot of it, I think, has to do with sort of the aggressive growth of these crops. So Yvonne Lawley at the University of Manitoba has looked at forage uh, brassica, for example, or these cover crop radishes, and really seems to point to the idea of that aggressive, very broad, leafy, quick, rapid growth that really serves to outcompete uh, the weeds. So, so that's a kind of a, a potential positive side of these crops. The negative side is that weeds can seriously get out of control in these systems. And particularly if you're in a system where you're willing to use herbicides or planning to use herbicides, you, you really can't in crop because you have this diverse polyculture. This is a trial where we actually did fall herbicide application and spring application, but this is from 2021, uh, which it was just last year. Very, very dry. I know similar for Alberta. And those dry conditions, the weed seed bank that was there just flourished, right? And what you can see in this picture, the livestock have eaten most of the crop right down to the ground. And they're sort of the most pre predominant weed there is kochia, which, as you know, is also very difficult to control with herbicide in many cases. And they were sort of topping it, right? They were nipping some of it off as feed, which it is a potential feed source. But really, the weeds were were quite prolific is maybe a nice way to say it. I was going to say tremendous. <laughs> Definitely not a nice scene to, to see. And then the other thing just to mention is that some cover crops may actually be kind of weedy. So hairy vetch, a lot of people are a little bit concerned about. This is a trial where I grew a, a wheat crop following a diverse mixture that included hairy vetch. And you can see inside this wheat crop here, all of these uh, greenish plants, you can even still see some purple flowers, that's hairy vetch. And depending on, again, your, your operation, it, it can be controlled with herbicide application, but it is something to note that if it goes to seed, there may be some, some risks with weediness. And then there's other new crops that people are trying, like chicory, which is also a weed, um, that there just have to be some awareness around those potentials. So far, so good with polycultures. We've got some productivity benefits, reduced chemical inputs, and some potential for weed suppression. Dr. Bernard also recommended being open and honest with seed companies when you're trying to figure out the seed mix you want and trying to figure out what seed mix is going to work in your part of the province. If you're interested in trying out polycultures, you might want to check out the Cover Crops Canada website just to get an idea of the different blends that are out there. Your own blend for your own polyculture is likely going to depend on your own goals, the environmental factors you're working with, and the resources you have available to you, whether we're talking about livestock or equipment. Another thing that might be of interest to you, uh, Rural Roots Climate Solutions Project called the Regenerative Agriculture Lab. Uh, polycultures is something they're working on right now, so you might want to reach out to the lab lead to find out more about what they're doing to advance us in the province. So as I said, forage productivity, we can see some increases or we have that sort of ability to balance production between those monocultures and those really diverse mixtures. When we look at it nutritionally, there is a really nice component to these forages is that you can actually maintain or actually improve your forage quality compared to an annual monoculture. It's in particular higher protein and lower fiber. As I mentioned, the brassicas are super 
watery. Uh, they're highly digestible, very low in fiber, which also can cause some probably digestive discomfort for animals. So uh, really, again, having that balance of some roughage with this, you know, high digestibility is, is a good thing. And those legumes, of course, definitely have a uh, higher crude protein as well and good digestibility. So for a feed test for these different nutrients from a four species mix compared to a oats monoculture. And in that case, you can see we had increased calcium, copper, iron, higher TKN, that's our crude protein measure, higher phosphorus, higher potassium, and lower ADF and lower NDF. The main thing with this is depending on what type of animal you're feeding, what stage they're at, some of these things might not necessarily be a good thing to have in, in high amounts or really have to be balanced uh, in terms of rationing. So, of course, if you are going to be feeding these, we strongly recommend getting a feed test to understand uh, what, what your blend looks like. And everybody's blend is going to be a little bit different, right? Year to year, depending on what you seeded. So uh, you're only going to know sort of for your own crop what it's looking like. And one of the other reasons to pay attention is especially around those inclusion of brassicas. So Alan Iwasa generated this data at Swift Current Research and Development Center. And those brassicas, in this bar graph, the red line is showing the nitrate safe level, and the blue line is showing the safe level for, for sulfurs. And you can see this is a suite of different brassicas that can be purchased. And you can see uh, many of them go above those safe levels for nitrates and sulfates. It's one of those things I've talked to people who have grazed pure brassica crops and not had a problem. Other people, especially with younger livestock, have definitely demonstrated or documented mortalities around this toxicity. So it's something to be aware of. And the pictures I show here of the cattle in the snow and, and the green brassicas poking through the snow is to recognize that they actually are somewhat frost tolerant and they can really regrow. So if they get grazed earlier in the season, other things might not come back as quickly. And then here you go back and there's this field full of brassicas. And so that, again, that original proportion that you seed might not match up with what the cattle are actually grazing. There would be some, some risks there in terms of toxicity if you weren't paying attention to that scenario. I found an article from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln discussing the nitrate issue that Dr. Bernard just brought up there. The article was published back in 2015. The main thing the authors of the article recommend is to avoid rapid consumption of high nitrate forages when you're working with a polyculture. According to the article, this can be done by doing things like slowly feeding livestock high nitrate forages to give their rumens a chance to adapt, mixing in some low nitrate feed, and avoiding feeding high nitrate forage when livestock are extremely hungry. Palatability is a, is a really interesting one. And again, very much dependent on the, the system you're working in, how your animals are grazing or feeding and what they're used to. It, at the research center, we were using yearling steers and they showed like really, really strong dislike for the brassicas. They just wouldn't touch them. And in the picture on the left, you can see there's like just sort of these patches and then all these bigger leaves just sort of sitting there. They just would, they were ignoring the brassicas. They were losing weight. Uh, we were stressing out <laughs> as researchers and, and a technical team. We we're like, they're not eating it. So we removed a bunch of the animals from the trial, but left three steers on and uh, over three, actually it was six different paddocks. 
And what we found is as they stayed on the trial, as they got used to the feed, and also those plants' palatability changed over time. As it gets later in the season, they apparently get sweeter. I have not tried them myself, <laughs> but um, we really saw the, the livestock actually started to gain weight and they were grazing. And in the picture on the right, you can see in September, a huge amount of regrowth, kind of what I was referring to. And, you know, the, the oats and barley that were in there, they were regrowing as well. So we weren't concerned at that point, but definitely a change in perspective for palatability. In higher intensity grazing situations, probably not going to be as much of a concern, right? Because those cattle are going to put their head down and graze whatever's in front of them. And so this is from one of my producer collaborators, Dwayne Thompson, uh, up at 2T Ranch near Kelleher in Saskatchewan. And he grazes 1,100 cow-calf pairs and bulls together. And when they came on our trial, they it was sort of interesting, and you can see that in this picture on, on the upper right. They did actually prefer our simple mix, which was just oats and peas, probably a little more familiar to them. They grazed that first and then sort of moved over to the the more complex mix, which had more of those brassicas and different crops. Um, but by the time they left, everything had been grazed very evenly and sort of trampled down into the ground. And another thing that Dwayne did, this was last year, uh, in terms of grazing potential, is that with those full season crops, there can be opportunities for a twice over grazing scenario. So he grazed a little bit earlier than what we would call peak biomass production, um, sort of probably a month sooner than when it would have been peak, but then was able to go back and regraze that same field in October and like just standing crop. It wasn't swathed or anything. And the total biomass was probably similar to what he would have gotten, if not a little more, if he had waited for that peak biomass. But what it was helpful for was in his grazing rotation as they move from field to field to kind of come back to this area and have that forage again for that late season gap where many producers are, are looking to extend the grazing season. If you're looking for other ways to extend your grazing season, have a listen to episode 63, Extending Grazing, with agriculture producer Ben Stewart. He's got a place out near Hardesty. In that episode, Ben shares his perspectives on things like stockpile grazing, swath grazing, stuff like that. To wrap things up, Dr. Bernard goes over the results from her polyculture test plots. For some weird reason, I had a lot of difficulty following this part of the presentation. I think it's because I only listened to the audio. I didn't actually watch the video from the webinar, which obviously had charts and graphs and stuff like that in it. Or, I don't know, maybe I'm just a really bad listener. Anyways, as she goes over the results, I'm going to jump in here and there to summarize, just for clarity's sake. The results for polycultures are looking pretty promising, and we want to make sure that's crystal clear. To the last section here, talking about soil benefits. So I think this is the really, and especially as Marie said, the, the climate solutions, I mean, this is the buzz around these polycultures, right? Is the, the benefits that you could possibly get from growing these crops, um, and in particular around soil health. So some of the things that you hear about and read about are increased soil nutrients. And I've already kind of referred a little bit to the increased nitrogen that we can get from those legume crops. Uh, increased carbon sequestration, 
and soil organic matter. This one is even being incentivized by the government of Canada. So for example, growing these cover crops is being suggested as a way to increase carbon sequestration. Increased water infiltration. I am collaborating with Steve Crittenden at the Brandon Research Centre, again with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. And so this data, we're still sort of compiling and analyzing it for water infiltration and soil aggregation, because I'm not a soil physical scientist, but definitely the idea behind those large rooted crops like turnips and, and radishes, right, can penetrate any kind of hard pan or compaction create channels, the root stays behind. Typically, sometimes though the livestock do pull them out and eat them, but those, if those roots stay behind as they decompose, they leave kind of like a fiber meshy sponge in the soil that water can then infiltrate through. Aggregation, several of the crops are suggested to release root exudates that encourage and help the soil to stick together. So again, we get better soil structure, which is better for moisture retention, uh, and other factors around soil health. So I've been looking at a lot of these things and in collaboration with soil scientists and soil microbial ecologists, I'm not going to get into all the super fine details. And as I said, some of it's still in the analysis stage, but just a little bit here, I'll, I'll highlight one research trial we did that started in 2018 and we seeded three different mixtures and we kind of chose these blends this goes back to where we started with how do you choose a blend and what to include. We chose three things, three blends that had kind of different purposes. So the first one I called a balanced mix. It had oats, barley, peas, hairy vetch, forage radish, and hunter brassica, which is like a hybrid brassica. Um, I called it balanced because we had kind of a balance between grasses, legumes, and brassicas. Pretty good forage nutrition profile, probably some possibility for weed control, but just kind of this middle of the road, reasonably complex mix there um, with six crops. Then I had a nitrogen fixing mix, which was all legumes. So this might be more like a green manure. So we had forage peas, hairy vetch, and something called bursine clover. Now one quick side note, it's quite difficult to find annual legumes that grow well in semi-arid conditions. Uh, we've tried a couple different things over the years with very mixed results. So this was three that we thought would do well. Bursim still didn't do great in, in the, the year we had. And then the third mix there was the weed control mix. And as I highlighted earlier, having more brassicas is suggested to provide that better competition. So by doing that, we expected this one to be even a little better at controlling weeds. And so I'm not going to talk about that component with this trial. I'm going to focus on the soil because what we also did is we had three fertilizer rates. So no fertilizer, 60 pounds per acre of nitrogen and 120 pounds per acre of nitrogen. And then three residue levels. One where we completely harvested the crop as if you were kind of going to be baling it. Another one where we left 50% behind and then one where we left 100% behind. And in our system, what we actually did was, was mow it and redistribute the chopped material back on, onto the plot as opposed to, you know, crimping, rolling or herbicide application. We kind of did a, a chopping, a chopping one. So looking at that soil impact, the following spring, so in 2019, before growing another crop, we took a soil test and we definitely saw that nitrates were obviously going to be linked with the fertilizer treatment from the year before. So the one I have a red circle around there is the 120 pounds of nitrogen. 
which makes sense, right? The more you apply the year before, the more should still be there. But interestingly, we also saw this strong increase depending on the amount of residue that we left behind. And that was highest in those nitrogen fixing mixes. So that role of residue uh, could be really important. And again, linked with the amount of legumes that you include and the amount of residue together. So finding number one, it appears having a combination of legumes in the mix and leaving as much residue as you can, can result in higher nitrate levels in the soil. So that year then, following that spring soil sampling, we seeded wheat across all the plots and those same two factors actually Im impacted our wheat yield because we did not apply any additional fertilizer in 2019. And you can see that the ones with the little yellow stars here, the amount of residue increased the amount of the, or sorry, the wheat yield, as did that previous year fertilizer application. However, cropping mixture did not have an impact. So it didn't matter if it was that balanced mix, the nitrogen fixing mix, or that weed control mix, when we just looked at the impact of the mixtures on those features. So again, in terms of soil benefits, you can see whatever we did the year before really did impact the following year. When we did the, the uh, fall soil sampling, we could still see that there was an impact of nitrate uh, correlated with that previous residue level. And now is when the previous cropping treatment showed up. So the, the 2018 nitrogen fixing mix, those plots had the highest amount of soil nitrates still remaining after that wheat crop was there and using that, that, those nitrates and that, that available nitrogen. So again, this is evidence to support that yes, these crops can have this residual effect on your next year's growth. The other thing to note is since we were talking about carbon sequestration, is that soil carbon and soil moisture were also correlated with the previous crop. And again, there was more soil carbon under that nitrogen fixing mix. And this didn't show up in the spring, right? It showed up after that wheat crop was harvested. And probably because this is a little bit, again, of a demonstration of the time it takes for these residues to break down and become incorporated into the soil. And we also see that the highest amount of moisture was on those legume crops. In particular, probably the cereals and brassicas were, were using more moisture from those other crops uh, and, and perhaps linked to the amount of organic material in the soil. Finding number two, residue appears to have an impact on wheat yields. And finding number three, the mix with legumes appears to have nitrate levels in the soil that persisted longer and had more soil carbon. In 2020, so we're into the last year I did this trial, we seeded peas, another monoculture over all these plots. There was no fertilizer added, no inoculant, just throw the peas in there, see what happens. Interestingly, pea yield was still impacted by what was grown two years previously, but in a negative way. And we saw actually a decrease in yield on those plots where the legumes, that, that nitrogen fixing mix had been grown. And probably, and this is why we rotate, right? There was probably a bit of pathogenicity or buildup that was detrimental. And so just showing that these mixtures, yeah, definitely have to consider that rotation as well. So that was the pea yield. And then we soil sampled again that fall following that pea crop. And at this time, there were no significant impacts on soil health. So the difference in nitri nitrates, the difference in soil carbon, 
none of those factors were visible anymore. And so this is where I think there are definite benefits to these systems, but from the evidence I'm gathered, I'm not sure that they are going to be that long-term. Again, depending on your cropping sequence and how your crops are going to be using those, those resources and incorporating as your soil kind of changes over time. So again, potential for, for short-term benefits and the, the long-term gains, I think are going to take a little more uh, time to, to figure out and, and obviously understand how these systems work with other crops. Was anyone else, did anybody else find themselves cheering on the nitrogen fixing mix, hoping that it was going to go four for four on the scoreboard of soil health? I know I was. I was a little disappointed when Dr. Bernard said the legumes had no impact or even a negative impact on the peas there. I blame the peas. So a few final thoughts. I put this together with another colleague in Saskatchewan who is a rancher and a crop producer, as well as works with the Saskatchewan Ministry of Ag, who we worked together to implement a trial at her farm and it really didn't go well. <laughs> and so she helped me with these, just sort of saying that be aware of some of the risks and and it can be very frustrating, but it can also be very rewarding. And I just always like to point out, like it's the same for all farming, right? You have to be aware of the limitations around weather and climate. I didn't really get into site conditions, but even just in uh, hilly terrain, we can see that a lot of these crops do not grow well sort of on dry knolls, whereas you might see more of them growing in the shallower, wetter spots. So being really aware of, of what your farm needs are and what your site conditions are like. And then all those management considerations that you already make, I would say actually get even a little bit more complicated with these polycultures. The weeds can be an issue. For grazing, there's some things to be aware of. Again, really just paying attention to what you're putting in that mix and how it's being used. And then my last point there is just to really talk with other people. I've definitely been told before that what I saw at a research farm is not what someone saw at their own farm. And I, I completely respect that and understand that. So definitely talk to people in your own region and other researchers. And there's there's lots of good resources out there to understand what some good you know, suggestions for crop inclusion might be for your area as well. So lots to think about. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and the Regenerative Agriculture Lab, produces a farmer's blog, works with rural communities to develop their own renewable energy projects, and of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Marie Galanka, Shina Younger, Kristen Mountain, Shelley Seed, and Lance Tailfeathers. The podcast is funded by a variety of Alberta-based funders. This episode was done in partnership with Young Agrarians. My parts of the episode were recorded in Calgary, so that means they're recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farm. Music